0: One of the interesting studies of of healers found that their brainwaves, again, were all over the place in ordinary states of consciousness. But in the healing moment, when they were actually doing laying on of hands, healing touch, shamanic healing, qigong healing, they all came into pronounced theta and that magical frequency of 7.8 hertz, the Schumann frequency. And what I, I think might be happening is they might be recruiting the frequency of the earth to produce the healing effect. I can't prove that in another for sure. The 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 shamans will tell you that that's what they're doing. Okay.
1: (laughs) Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
2: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that human meddling has manipulated dogs' brains. Dog breeders have shaped the looks and behavior of dogs for centuries, and now we just figured out they've sculpted dogs' brains too. A brain scanning study of 62 purebred dogs looking at 33 breeds reveals that dog brains are not all alike. Different breeds actually had different shapes of different brain regions, distinctions that weren't just the result of head shape or the size of their brains or bodies, according to the Journal of Neuroscience. So through selective breeding, we've systematically shaped the brains of another species, according to Erin Hecht, who's an evolutionary neuroscientist at Harvard. She's and her colleagues uh, did the study. And they weren't trying to link brain shape to behavior, but they did get some hints. They found that groups of brain areas, such as smell and taste regions, had the biggest variability between breeds, and those groups are involved in specialized behaviors that often serve us, like hunting by smell, guarding, or providing companionship, like earlier studies have suggested. And they didn't study this, but there's a hypothesis that dogs that are trained extensively for things like herding sheep or detecting bombs or guiding the blind, might have even more distinct brains. So what does that mean for you? Well, it means you should buy a dachshund because they're the best dogs out there, obviously. At least if you ask my dog, he would tell you that. But he might be biased as well. And (laughs) the other thing in there for you is that genetic manipulation is a slippery slope. And I'm all interested in manipulating my own genes. I'm not so sure that I'd wanna manipulate my germ line going down. But once I'm confident we have enough information and enough knowledge to do that, and maybe we've tested it in our dogs, it might be time to upgrade the human gene line, but we'll leave that for later times. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. I am going to be interviewing today live at the Beverly Hilton, which is my favorite hotel in LA, Uh, a good friend, you guys have been on the show before, uh, named Dawson Church, who's an expert in flow states, in tapping, and epigenetics, and just a variety of, of powerful things that he's spent his life doing. If you haven't heard the previous episode, number 474, where we talked a lot about tapping, Dawson actually led me through an EFT session on that podcast. And if you don't know what tapping is, it's a technique of uh, getting into emotional stuff inside the body very quickly, Uh, without having to really believe anything and it now has uh, dozens of clinical trials behind it including ones that Dawson himself has conducted and he founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare to promote this kind of new treatment. He's also deeply studied meditation on the brain and tapping and is looking at how do you take people and do things that are the fastest possible to reach altered states or to heal things that you didn't think were healable. So Dawson... Welcome to today's show to talk specifically about brain waves and how to get specific brain waves using techniques that don't require technology.
0: I am so looking forward to sharing that. And as you were talking about the dogs, I was having a very hard time not laughing out loud and spoiling your audio because it is so <laughs> hysterical. And we'll find out that we actually are doing that with our own brains all the time. That we're uh, breeding our brains to change their sizes? We're breeding our brains in various ways. And in one case study I presented in one of my books called Mind to Matter, I talk about one particular man by way of illustration of this phenomenon. His name was Graham Phillips, and he happened to be the host of a big TV show in Australia. And he'd heard about mindfulness, meditation, these kinds of techniques, but was a bit of a skeptic and thought he'd try them out. He'd heard about the health benefits. And so before he began to do them seriously, he made an appointment at his local high-tech university lab called Monash University, and they gave him a comprehensive suite of 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 tests, including very high-resolution MRIs of all different parts of his brain, measuring brain volume. He then began to meditate, be mindful, and... Really change his practices every day. And within two weeks of that, he felt different. He had less road rage. He wasn't screaming and yelling at his kids. And he was much much more patient than before after two weeks of this. But after eight weeks, he went back into Monash. And I guess this is just two months later, did the same series of tests with him uh, under the gaze of the TV cameras, same high resolution MRI. Parts of his brain had grown by two, three, or 4% in just eight weeks. But the part of his brain that grew the most is called the dentate gyrus, which is a sliver of tissue in the hippocampus that regulates emotion throughout multiple brain areas. And his dentate gyrus, the volume of, de- of neural tissue in his dentate gyrus in eight weeks grew by 22.8%. In other words, he would produced about a fifth bigger dentate gyrus in just two months so that is the power of our behavior of our beliefs of our practices of our spiritual practices of our, our emotional states on our brains we are we are reshaping our brains with every thought we think with every emotion we feel with every meditation session we we do so just like the dogs we are breeding our own brains the the, the software of our minds is literally creating the hardware of our brains
2: it's pretty profound but it also makes sense if you look at what happens in two months of training, if you start doing curls every day, in two months you're going to have measurably bigger and stronger biceps. How would the brain not be the same way? That this outdated idea that oh we are we're born with the brain we're going to die with the same number of cells and all that stuff it was made up. There was no data backing that up, and it's it's. An honor that Eric Kandel, the guy who basically discovered neuroplasticity and won a Nobel Prize for it, has come on Bulletproof Radio. And I got to interview him, talk about learning from your elders. And here we are now, you've got a study you just talked about that was on TV. Um, not that long after the Nobel Prize was actually awarded for that, saying a 22% change just from a meditative practice. And this is a, a size change. It's actually like building a muscle. And your brain really is a muscle. All right.
0: Now extrapolate that to not just eight weeks of mindfulness, but to a year or two years or three years or five years of these practices, and you start to have a radically different brain. And um, personally, for me, it's been profound to do this day because when I was a young uh, person, I we had a lot of chaos in our family. I had PTSD early on. I now I now realize I was very depressed, very anxious when I was a teenager, and so. My quest was to fix myself. I wanted to not be a depressed, anxious human being. I was so depressed that people avoided me. One day, when I was 15 years old, I was with a bunch of friends in a hotel, and I, I walked past a full-length mirror, and I I looked at this person in the mirror, and there I was, with my you know, very very long hair, and my bell-bottom trousers, and my hippie bag around my shoulder, and but I looked at this kid looking back in the mirror, and I, th- I, I thought, my self talk was, that's the saddest face I've ever seen, and that was me, and so I needed to fix myself. So we got all kinds of, of 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 practices to try and do that: spiritual practices, studying psychology, and and now the the wonderful thing about technology, like gene chips and cortisol assays, and the ability to study our hormones, our neurotransmitters. Um, our brain waves is that we can quantify these changes. And so we know that person isn't just subjectively happy, but happier, but we know that they're objectively shifting their whole endocrinal function, their whole brain function, their whole neurological function. And we can actually map these states and then train people in how to do them. So it's just wonderful to me that we're at this new new stage where technology is serving us in that way.
2: It's it's a revolution and a lot of
0: a lot of people forget you go back 10 years. If you were a CEO
2: and you said I meditate, there was a reasonable chance your board of directors would vote to remove you as CEO. <laughs> For real. Yeah. Right? I I remember I used to put yoga and modafinil <laughs> in my uh, in my LinkedIn profile even going back 20 years and and people would l- kind of look at me weird, but it was Silicon Valley and I worked in, you know, futuristic tech and people were a little more accepting. But every now and then, someone would would pull me aside after the meeting and go, "I, I saw you put that in there. You know what? What's modafinil?" Or, "I meditate too. Or I do yoga, but I don't tell anyone." So, there's always been a a history, especially in certain areas of art, uh, you know, the music industry, and in the tech industry, that's been tied into these states of intuition, states of altered consciousness, where good stuff happens, but. It was the sort of thing that was almost like there was a stigma associated with it, and I feel like the stigma is completely gone from meditation. And now it's like, oh, you don't meditate, right? And, and so you can ask a roomful of people, how many people are meditating? Everyone raises their hand. Like, okay, there's a lie detector on now, and you know, a light's going to shine on you if you're lying. Don't put your hand out. Half of them are going to put their hand down. And say, oh, I, I, I tell people I meditate, but I didn't really do it. Kind of like flossing. Uh, so we, this is a very profound shift in ten years. But the reason that I like your work, Dawson, the reason I'm writing the foreword for your, your new book um, is that um, you're saying, okay, let's use the tools of meditation, including tapping, but let's also map it back using clinical studies. Let's look at brain waves specifically and see what actions generate which brain waves. because if you can tell people the actions, maybe they don't have to hook themselves up to electrodes as often or maybe they'll, they just won't do it at all because they weren't accessible. So let's, let's get into brainwaves. In your new book, Bliss Brain, that I'm writing the foreword for, uh, you really are going deep into these brainwave states and what they actually do and how to turn them on. So what I want us to do today, I want you to walk listeners through the different brain states I'm gonna ask you about those, but then I want you to walk me through your fastest technique for accessing an altered state of consciousness.
0: That is a great question because you need to know what the state is you're aiming for, and then how to get there efficiently, and you need to know those two things. And so the first one is that state of consciousness. In 1922, 23, 24, the developer of the EEG was 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 looking for a way to measure brain waves, and uh, he was a German doctor called Hans uh, Hans Berger, and uh, he actually began looking for brain waves. After a metaphysical experience, he was a young cavalry officer in the 1890s, and um, one day he and his his unit were dragging a heavy siege gun behind them in an exercise, and he fell off his horse right in the path of this gun carriage that weighed weighed many tons. And as he was about to be crushed, his friends managed to stop it, stop the, the gun carriage crushing him. And when he got back to barracks that that day, there was a telegram from his father asking if he was okay. Now, his father had never sent him a telegram before, ever. And so he went back home that weekend and said, you know, what what was the origin of this? And his sister said, I had this terrible premonition at that moment. And so I asked father to send a telegram. And he began to think, well, how are we able to have these these experiences? He began to look for waves in the brain. And so eventually he developed the EEG, in the 1920s, it was developed further. In the 30s, there was a lot of skepticism that that anything meaningful could be derived from brain waves. And if you read the early reports debunking brain waves and EEGs, they were fierce, and he had a very difficult time. And eventually, committed suicide because of the opposition to his work and other other factors. But um, in the 1960s, after World War II, several pioneering um, pioneers began to use EEGs to look at states of consciousness. So not as medical technology, but as a technology looking at spiritual and emotional states. So Maxwell Cade had worked on radar for Britain in World War II, engineer, and he began to hook up swamis and yogis and adepts. And he found, after hooking up people from Christian traditions, uh, who were, they were monks, they were nuns, people from Buddhism, from Hinduism, from um, from uh, the Kabbalistic school in Judaism, Sufis. He found, to his amazement, that they all had the same brainwave profile, regardless of their spiritual beliefs, which were all over the map, but they all had the same brainwave profile, and he called that the awakened mind. Then his student, Anna Wise, began to hook up um, concert pianists, and um, elite athletes, and high-performance CEOs, and sure enough, when they were in these flow states, they also showed the awakened mind. So it turns out it's not a religious state. It's actually a state the brain is able to be in, and one you can measure. Now, the, the crucial thing about the awakened mind state is that There are whole networks of brain regions that are active in it. And when most people close their eyes and meditate, and the reason that half the people in your analogy put their their hands down when you say, there's a lie detector here, and it's going to measure if you really are meditating, is because meditation is hard. And it's hard because the brain is not designed to meditate. The brain is designed to detect threats and help you survive. You know, you, you say in, in Superhuman, your book Superhuman, you say, not die. And a huge amount of brain tissue is devoted to scanning the environment and making sure you don't die. Now, when you're nice and safe in your cave, and when there's no obvious threat, you can relax. And so now the brain doesn't have to do that. You're reasonably safe. Now it has spare capacity to do something. So the brain then does something. And what the brain does isn't relax The brain uses all of its capacity to do something. This is one of the big mysteries of neuroscience for decades, was that the brain activity doesn't fluctuate by more than 5% up or down day or night. When you relax, your brain doesn't relax. Your Your brain activity just stays at the same high level. And what turns on when you aren't doing a task... And just for uh, convenience, we call that the task positive network. When you're engaged in doing something, when you're writing an email, when you're talking to your friend, when you're driving, when you're navigating your life, your task positive network is doing those tasks. When you're not doing a task, the brain sees all this unused spare capacity and it says, great, let's grab this. And it grabs it to such a consistent degree that we call that the default mode network. It's just what your brain defaults to. So if there's any spare capacity available, the default network grabs that capacity and uses it. And what the default mode network does is two things. One is, think about the tiger that almost ate you yesterday and how you escaped from it, and the tiger that might eat you tomorrow. And today there are no tigers, so we close our eyes, we we sit back and relax, and we start thinking about well, for me, the most scary thing I can think about, the most tigerish thing is my email inbox, or the 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 deadline that's looming, or uh or the insult someone uh made at me 10, 20, 40 years ago, uh, and how that might happen in the next while. So now we the default network defaults to the disasters of our past, and the possible disasters of our future. And so we close our eyes to meditate, and the default mode network says, oh, here's all the spare capacity. Let's catastrophize about what might happen in the future and the bad stuff of the past, and so people, people close their eyes. And uh, when, when I was trying to think about, for my new book, This Brain, about how to, a story to tell about this. And as I was trying to find an analogy for this, one of my team members came in to work that particular day and he was a little bit out of, out of sorts. And he said, oh, I, I really messed up this morning in my relationship. Uh, I, my, my girlfriend's a meditator, and uh, she meditates every morning. I tipped her around the apartment, don't want to disturb her. And I try not to uh, get in, in, in her way. But today I, I just closed the cabinet door too loudly. And she opened her eyes and she said to me, don't fuck with my serenity. nice so she's meditating and yet she's her default mode network is totally turned on so that's what why people can't meditate so you have to find a way of meditating that overcomes the tendency of the brain when not faced with the challenge to default to thinking about the past and the future
2: when i first started writing uh, for the the bulletproof blog I came across some research that, for the first time, researchers at Oxford figured out that the default mode network is always on. We used to think it was either on or off, and that now we understand it's more of like a sliding switch, so what percentage of the brain is using the default mode? And I also realized that we oftentimes aren't aware of what's happening, it's the default mode when we're not paying attention. And with meditation, you kind of go in there and pay attention to it. I even developed some software a few years ago that would allow me to train my memory while I was in default mode. So you can remember what's going on because you forget your dreams, you forget your daydreams, but it seems like there's a lot of goodness going on in there, at least when you can train it not to think about tigers. Because if you go in and you're able to spy on your default mode and all that's in there is fear, what good is that? But if what's in there is something useful, Do you have techniques that tell us how to make our default mode, which we normally don't see, how to make it do good stuff?
0: There is a set of techniques that I developed many years ago, which I bundle. And what I was thinking about at a conference once, I was keynoting a conference, and um, Roland McCready from HeartMath was there, and there was a neurofeedback expert there, and we were just talking about all the different techniques we all have and how great they are and how they all work. And then I thought... I thought of them as a, a buffet. And there's the smoked salmon, and there's the there's the tuna, and then there, there's the the prime rib, and there's the wonderful macaroni and cheese, and there's green salad, all these things in the buffet. And so I thought, you know, what would happen if I put them all together? So I developed this little routine that combined heart math and tapping. And neurofeedback and hypnosis, but in mechanical ways. So you just relax certain muscles in your your body. You breathe in a certain rhythm, and essentially you're mimicking the physiological state of a master meditator when you do this. And so I thought I did this kind of as, as just as a joke, putting all these things together. And then I, I was at a conference, so I I got a, about 200 people in a room. I had them all do this, and lo and behold they all went into this deep meditative state. Not only that, they went into heart coherence, and then they went into heart coherence together, all 200 of them. And so it was exciting, and I've, I've now been teaching this, I've now been studying this, we've now done EEG studies, and um, I, I, the first time I did this with a, with a group, with, um, with two neuroscientists in the room, with people hooked up to EEGs in the back of the room, and uh, so I didn't know what would happen, but during the lunch break, the first day, I had lunch with these two neuroscientists, and uh, I was asking them, well, you know, what did you see on, on your screens? And the, they could hardly contain themselves. The one said, Dawson, these people were making so much delta that I had to literally change the aspect ratio of my screen and zoom out fourfold to capture it. I'd never seen that much delta before. And then, of course, when you make lots of delta, you make lots of gamma. They were making lots of gamma. And then she said, and after I zoomed out fourfold, I still couldn't capture enough, enough, uh, enough of the data. I had to zoom out fourfold again, 16-fold. And then finally, I was able to see all the delta and all the gamma they were producing. And then one of her colleagues wrote a paper about this, And what amazed them was that not only were people, non-meditators or fail-meditators, entering these states mechanically, doing these seven simple steps, but they were doing it in about about four minutes. And then the critical thing she wrote afterwards in the the, the report that was published on her work was that she said, what we found was that when they finished meditation and opened their eyes, they maintained that awakened mind state with eyes open and that's the crucial thing you want to be able to get to these elevated emotional states when you're in meditation what you really want to be able to do though is carry them forward into your work day, into your parenting into your friendships, into your workouts into all the other parts of your life so maintaining those states with eyes open is the critical thing we've now found that with these simple physical steps they trigger this in most people, even those who failed meditation and they, the, those steps keep your task positive network turned on a little bit. I keep reminding you during the meditation, now breathe, and the instruction is six seconds in, six seconds out. That puts you into heart coherence. And then I'll remind you to relax certain muscles. And so those that, that just gives the task positive network enough stuff to keep it busy to where the default mode network doesn't crank up and take over the meditation.
2: That's fascinating. So four minutes to get into a really deep meditative state. Um, that would be... Uh, faster than almost any other technique that I, that I know about. And this is basically the subject matter of, of bliss Brain. You're teaching people in your book how to do that. Now, you mentioned Delta. Um, what is Delta good for? Let's walk through the brain states, so when you then walk me and everyone listening, through the technique, that we understand what the states are. So start with delta. Let's work our way up from there. What does delta do?
0: So delta is uh, one to four cycles per second, or hertz. And when we talk about hertz or cycles per second, it is a rhythm that neurons use to fire, to communicate with each other. And uh, the analogy I use in my book, Mind to Matter, is I went to a, a concert by a Beatles tribute band called Rain with my wife. Now, my wife <laughs> One of my favorite photographs from her teenage years is standing on the roof of her house in Connecticut waving uh, a huge banner that says, We love you, John Lennon, as the Beatles' plane flew over for their first concert tour in 1964. <laughs> She's been a Beatles fan for a long, long time. And even at the, the, that concert with the Beatles' tribute band, she was jumping up and down and screaming and yelling. and and uh, So... What happened, though, was people were applauding, and when they're applauding, they're applauding, and it's just like the usual applause you hear, which is out of phase. Everyone's clapping out of phase. But after the end of the the rain concert, everyone began to clap rhythmically. Clap, 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 clap. That's roughly twice a second. That's delta, that, that one to four, zero to four cycles per second. So your neurons fire that way, and that rhythmic clap, 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 clap it was heard by the band off stage. It was a signal to them to come out and do an encore, where the non-coherent clapping beforehand had not been. Same thing with our our, our brain waves, our near ones. They fire at those rates, and that communicates something to distant neurons. So the band could behind the curtain could hear that clapping. So that, that's what, what hertz or frequency means. Then the next one, of course, is, is theta, 4 to, her, four, four to 8 uh, cycles per second. But delta, in delta, our brains and meditation make lots of delta in those deep states. And delta is associated with all kinds of amazing uh, effects in our cells. Things like the proliferation of stem cells. You need stem cells and you need them to do three things. They need to proliferate, they need to multiply, they need to travel, they need to migrate. So stem cell migration is important and stem cell adhesion is important. And there are frequencies in delta that literally trigger the proliferation of stem cells. There are different frequencies in theta that trigger the migration of stem cells. And there are there's a third set of frequencies that our brains make during meditation that causes adhesion of stem cells so it's it's remarkable we're literally triggering these things with these frequencies ourselves during meditation, but the slowest wave is Delta. it's the wave of uh, people people in deep meditation have lots of delta, psychics tend to have lots of delta, clairvoyance have lots of delta. Um, mystics have lots of delta. People in very, very deep reverie have delta. It's our, it's our main restorative wave when we're asleep. You need to have have lots of delta. Delta is the foundation of your sleep patterns. So it's a phenomenally important wave and you have more of it in these states.
2: Uh, it's one of the reasons that in superhuman I'm writing, you really have to get your deep sleep. And if you're sleeping but you're not getting deep sleep, you're you're doing a bad job of it. And certainly, um, I see that at forty years of Zen, you know, delta is a, a powerful state. There's there's different types of delta. There's different locations of delta, and you know, some of them are very powerful, and some of them are probably not places you want to go without uh, without doing a lot of work ahead of time, because um, very deep delta states can also be you know, ungrounding or even just uh, kind of put your ego in charge.
0: Yeah, for example. Um, uh- PTSD survivors, childhood abuse survivors, often have lots of Delta because um, they're they're scanning the environment for threats all the time. Delta is also an important pruning wave when you're asleep, so you do a lot of pruning in Delta.
2: Now, you mentioned Theta a little bit. Theta is about stem cell migration, making it move around. What else happens in a Theta state in the brain?
0: When I was writing Mind to Matter, I looked at a review of all the research on the effects of frequencies on our cells. It covered 175 papers. It was from 1950 to the present time. And uh, I thought, how do I make sense of 175 papers? How do I tell a story about this? How do I make this meaningful to, to readers and applicable and relevant to their own lives? And so what I did was I I then said, I'm going to focus only on the frequencies that our brains make endogenously during meditation so I'm going to limit this big mass of information to those frequencies that are helpful to us in in our in our lives in our 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 health and the ones we make ourselves because those are the ones we have we have control over so uh, I, I began to look at what. Delta, theta, alpha, and the other frequencies do. And it's amazing what these frequencies produce in our lives. I list the studies, and I list the effects in the book. This is in Mind to Matter. This is in Mind to Matter. By
2: by the way, uh, people who were uh, subscribers to the the curated box, every quarter I send out a box full of the latest biohacking goodies uh, to people. And if you go to biohacked.com, you can sign up for that but i actually sent them all the first couple chapters of mind to matter when this book first came out this was going back a couple of years
0: yeah and uh, again the, the, the idea is to inspire people to to use it's use a these, good book use these techniques so um, enhancing molecular bonding is one of the effects of of theta another is regenerating human cartilage Another is increasing the activity of antioxidants, which, of course, neutralize pre radicals, and also increasing the production of serotonin and also repairing DNA. Also, theta is the fundamental wave of the planet, the Earth. 7.8 Hertz is mm-hmm. the Schumann frequency of, of the Earth. And so uh, one of the interesting studies of, of Healers found that their brainwaves, again, were all over the place in ordinary states of consciousness. But in the healing moment, when they were actually doing laying on of hands, healing touch, shamanic healing, qigong healing, they all came into pronounced theta and that magical frequency of 7.8 hertz, the Schumann frequency. And what I, I think might be happening is they might be recruiting the frequency of the earth to produce the healing effect i can't prove that in another for sure but the the shamans will tell you that that's what they're doing (laughs) okay because we know we evolved on a planet where that's that's the dominant frequency
2: when you and i both talk with shamans they're connecting to the gaia mother earth and whatever other stuff they do but generally no matter which shaman you talk to there's some sort of language that sounds pretty similar to what you just described yeah okay It's it's a hypothesis though it's hard to prove
0: it is okay but what isn't is that that, that the brains that their brains are tend yeah. to be in seven point eight during the healing moment, regardless right. of the healing tradition they're part of.
2: Correct. And so there's there's something around that resonance, and that resonance happens um, because when there's lightning, if there's a resonance between the ionosphere and the surface of the earth, and basically because of the size of that spacing, it, it generates a seven point eight hertz uh, EMF signal that's probably our predominant timing signal for our biology, other than the light dart cycle. And when I look at, at Theta, Theta is also a state where a lot of interesting uh, creativity and intuition comes out. Uh, so I was in a, a really deep Theta state. Uh, in fact, I, I snapped out of it. This was one induced by neurofeedback. Uh, I snapped out of it and kind of shook my head and wrote the entire uh, outline for my first book, The Better Baby Book, just straight from my unconscious. It, it was pretty amazing. And that's actually you know, the first book, Wiley published it, and and that launched me as an author. Um, because of a theta state. And and so this is a profound thing. And and the things that you're teaching in Blitzbrain actually are, okay, here's how you get into delta, here's how you get into theta. Um, what about alpha and beta and gamma? Talk to me about alpha. Well,
0: alpha is the big one that biofeedback and neurofeedback try to get you into. Yep. And uh, Max Cade, that early pioneer, called at the bridge. And he felt as though the two slow waves of delta and theta were the subconscious and unconscious mind. Uh, then, of course, beta is the conscious mind, the higher frequency wave. But he felt that alpha was a bridge. And if you look at people, for example, doing therapy, uh, we've had a number of conferences. I have one person on stage. There may be a thousand people in the audience. We'll have their brain waves projected on the screen behind them. We'll then do EFT tapping. We'll have them go to a deep meditative state. And uh, one woman, for example, had been sexually abused from an early early age, and uh, we use this work a lot with PTSD. We just did our annual count of the number of veterans we've treated over the last 10, 12 years through our Veteran Stress Project, which offers free EFT to people. And it's now over 21,000 veterans we've treated free of charge over the last decade and and a bit uh, with these methods. It's amazing, Dave, to watch people who've been sexually abused, who've been hurt, and what happens to their brainwaves. What happened to hers was that when she was thinking about the abuse, her theta and delta shrank to almost nothing, Mm -hmm. both in her left and right hemisphere, and her beta, which is the wave of anxiety and stress, filled the entire screen. Classic PTSD brain. Classic PTSD brain. Hypervigilant, alert, full of intrusive thoughts, full of... The all the the anxiety that comes from that state, but as the therapist who was working with her treated her, you saw her whole brainwave state change radically. Now it's not the, not the it's not the frequencies that are are the crucial thing so much as the ratios between them. And so we saw the amount of beta shrink, and the amount of alpha expand. And Maxwell Cade said that alpha is the bridge between the conscious frequencies of beta. So what do you find, for example, in Tibetan monks who've done over 40,000 hours of meditation? They're, they're not brain dead. Their they're, they're beta has, hasn't gone away. They have some beta activity there, too. They're still thinking. Yep. But um, they have this huge alpha bridge. So now that bridge is the creativity bridge between that unconscious stuff which you're talking about writing your, your book, that theta, you have access to it because alpha's there. You can have all the theta and delta in the world, but if you don't have the alpha bridge to get you there, you're cut off from it consciously. When you have that big alpha, that, that's when you then have those ideas rise up into consciousness. So what we saw with her, art treatment was all that high-beta went away. It was just beautiful. She felt a sense of inner peace. She felt a sense of love. She felt a sense of calm in her life. She had huge alpha, an enormous amount of of delta, and then what rides on big delta is gamma. She began to have flashes of gamma, because before, when she was all anxious, no gamma either. So you literally see these changes happening in, in people in real time during this treatment.
2: It's amazing. One of the reasons that I started Forty Years Zen is I realized I wanted my alpha to be uh, bigger, um, a better alpha bridge. And any time a brain doctor looks at my brain, they say, "Wow, that's uh, that's big alpha," <laughs> and it is absolutely trainable. And I'm I'm exceptionally fortunate to have you know, neuroscientists working for one of my companies, so I get to have all the gear at home to do that. Um, but I don't think I could do the the array of creative stuff that I do. You know, uh, Superhuman just hit the New York Times uh, list, which I'm super grateful for. It, it was my third time, and I'm a dad and a husband and a venture back CEO and uh, a podcaster and all this stuff that that cre- that requires creativity. I don't think I could have done those things. In fact, I'm sure that I couldn't have in my 20s, where you know you're younger, but I didn't have the brainwaves for it. So they are absolutely trainable. And I'm I'm really intrigued by the technique that that you're going to share with me that might be able to get me there very quickly, which would be a, a great gift. But you haven't talked about gamma yet, which is something that we didn't know about back when they were discovering the alpha bridge. No one could measure gamma because it's harder to measure because it's a tiny little frequency. What's your latest research on gamma brainwaves?
0: Yeah, and just an aside too on that that time into meditation, um, there is little unanimity in the EEG community as to what meditation even is. So I'll talk a little bit about what I define it as in Bliss Brain. But um, what Andrew Newberg found in his and he reports in his book, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, mm-hmm. is that when he hooks people up, it takes them 20 to 40 minutes to hit that awakened mind state. Even experienced meditators, it takes them 20 minutes to get there. Novices can take them a whole hour to get there. So if you have, say, for example, 45 minutes to meditate and it takes you 20 minutes to get there, you only have 25 minutes there. If it takes you 40 minutes to get there, you only have five minutes there. So you really want to shorten that window. You're
2: saying in one hour or what, what is it limited to an hour? Once you get there, can't you hang out there?
0: You can hang out there, but just say, for example, you are a dad, and you have your kids, and you've set your alarm clock early. Because I did that when I I first decided to meditate. (laughs) I I had to have my kids to school by 8, so I had to leave the house at 7.30. I had to get them up and everything like that. So I I got up at 6.30. And then the the day I decided to meditate every day, and that's a whole other story, um, I realized I'd have to get up at 5.30. 5.30. Yep. It, it's like, is there any such hour? Does 5.30 exist? I, I was just terrified, but I I, I did it. That, I began to do it the next day. I got into the rhythm of it after a while, and I do it automatically every day. But um, So doing it every day. So I only had 45 minutes, and yeah. most of my 45 minutes was, was wasted. You want to make it as efficient as possible and get there fast. Did, did you just say, hurry and meditate faster? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, that's what it really comes down to. We don't have time to waste getting into these states. Even the Dalai Lama offered, I think, a $100,000 prize a while ago. Say, so anyone who can help me get into this state faster, it takes me four hours. I don't have four hours, right? So- it, it's it's a, on one hand almost offensive to meditators. Oh, you're supposed to be slow and you're supposed to just relax. You're like, no. You, you, there's only so much time. There's all kinds of meditative states you go into and there's other stuff that you want to do as a functioning human being. So thank you for for saying it, that look, you only have five minutes there because you had to take your kids to school because that's the way most of us are living our lives, including
0: me. Well, yeah. these, these studies are people, say for example, uh, the Richard Davidson studies are, are people who have forty thousand lifetime hours of meditation, but they went into a monastery when they were six, yeah. and they have everyone ta- they have their knees taken care of. You know, they're meditating many hours a day, but they don't have to raise a family, mm-hmm. or raise venture capital, or right. manage businesses, or any any of, these, any of these things. And these, so we read about their meditative states. And we say, oh, these these are great gurus, great adepts. Well yeah, but they don't have to deal with all all this stuff. Yeah. So yeah. that's not a realistic model for Westerners. So we need that 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 meditation that gets us into that state quickly. And so in in a big study I did of Joe Dispenza's uh, meditation retreats, i I defined it as time into meditation. and we define it as sustaining alpha for fifteen seconds or more when you can sustain alpha for, 15 seconds or more, we regard you as being in meditation. So we actually did did have a definition of meditation we, we created for that, that, that research project. But then... Um, eyes closed alpha? Eyes closed alpha. Okay. That's important.
2: Seconds. If you're listening to this, you're saying, okay, I think I know what alpha is. It's that you know, relaxed bridge state. When you close your eyes, especially if you look up towards your forehead, your your third eye between your eyes, you'll pretty much experience alpha, a, a brief flash of alpha. So it's harder to have eyes open alpha. That's why a lot of meditative states your eyes are closed. I just realized that may not, that's common for you and me. Yes. We know that, but listeners may not. Okay, keep going.
0: Okay, so uh, gamma is what starts to happen when people are sustaining these states. And so, for example, in those forty thousand-hour meditator studies, uh, they those meditators were able to both have gamma and sustain gamma, and the degree of gamma was seven hundred times. 700-fold um, the amount that they were seeing in ordinary people. So enormous amounts of gamma. Gamma is found in highly creative states, highly creative people, whether, again, whether it's an extreme athlete, whether it's a concert pianist, whether it is, uh, is a scientist having a flash of insight. Uh, that's gamma. So when you solve a problem... When you have uh, do really um, satisfying intellectual exercise, you'll have a burst of gamma. But these monks can sustain gamma for a very, very long period of time. And it's the it's found in creative people. It's found in high achievers. It's the mark of the flow state. So that, that big alpha bridge, and then that'll tend to produce gamma. It's
2: probably the most unknown of the brain states. A lot of people still believe it can't be trained. And I see routinely when uh, we're training people to do gamma, that their gamma goes up and to the right the more they're doing the training exercises with neurofeedback as a part of it. This is 40 Years of Zen stuff, but it rides as a carrier. It rides on delta, it rides on alpha, and it. if you want to visualize this, so, there's like a big slow wave, like a, a giant wave. Imagine you're surfing see these big waves, but on top of that big wave there's little waves at the top. The gamma's the little waves at the top that are crashing, but the big wave is the carrier wave, and your brain waves do something similar to that. You like that analogy? That's how I I walk That's people perfect. through it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's very hard, unless you're a, an engineer, uh, which, which I am, uh, to, and you've looked at oscilloscopes and all, to, to remember what waves are and how they look. But it, you can think of it as the little wave that sits on the big wave. But if the big wave isn't there, you're not going to get much of the little wave. Right. So it's hard to train the little wave, which is why most neuroscientists say, oh, either gamma doesn't matter or it's not trainable. It's
0: because you have to create the big wave to have the little wave. Right. Okay. Now, I want to say one thing about gamma. You mentioned the study in in, in Superhuman as well. But in Superhuman, you uh, you mentioned it very briefly. I give it a lot of attention in uh, in Mind to Matter. And it's the MIT study of gamma shone into the brains of of lab animals. Mm-hmm. And um, what the researchers found was that uh, mice, when they're running a maze and they hit a black wall and they can't get any further, they get frustrated. And so um, normal mice have a burst of gamma. Alzheimer's mice, mice bred for Alzheimer's research to have have rapid formation of, of beta amyloid plaques in their brains, don't have that burst of gamma. So this, this team at MIT said, "What would be what would happen if we induced gamma in the brains of those mice?" And so in the first study they did, they did it through by shining light in through the 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 noses of of the mice, and they found. Now again, this is an example of what. A frequency can do for your physiology, they found that in one hour of gamma, 50% of the beta amyloid plaques in the brains of those mice disappeared. 50% reduction in the beta amyloid plaques in the visual cortexes of those mice in one hour of of gamma. And I just list that as one of many studies in Mind Matter because we can make gamma, we can make alpha, we can do all these things, and we can have huge effects with energy on our physiology. It's really interesting,
2: in uh, one of the researchers from, I want to say Harvard, a neuroscientist figured out that a light blinking 40 times a second, 40 hertz, the beginning of gamma, right, I'd would, would put that in gamma. Gamma is normally around 60, but it's, it's higher than typical beta. Uh, she found that it reliably reduced amyloid plaque, ended up starting a company about that. And I remember this really well because I first talked to her about it when I was wearing Hugh Hefner pajamas at a costume party. <laughs> 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 what a scene, I can
0: picture it in my mind's eye. <laughs> it, it was fantastic, it was at the,
2: the Near Future Summit and it was right next to the Salk Institute uh, in San Diego, and it was a, a costume party. I didn't have a costume, so I asked my assistant, "Hey, send me something." And she sends me these red satin pajamas. I am like, "Really? Thanks." Uh, and everyone else shows up in unicorn onesies because they were all venture capitalists. They all like unicorns. And then there is this Harvard neuroscientist, like dressed like a neuroscientist, completely like. Why are all these people dressed weird? It, it was it was exceptionally memorable because it was so random. But we spent the whole night just talking about this research and and those the study there. And what it comes down to in superhuman amyloid plaque, including beta amyloid in in the brain, it's essentially cellular level scar tissue. And it's a a consequence of aging. But when you can induce a signal that reduces trauma, the body realizes it needs less scars to protect itself. So there's... An explanation, and all of this, can I prove everything? I just said no, but does it make sense given the results we're seeing when people go into these states that are associated with trauma release? Yeah, it kind of does make sense. So talk to me about trauma and gamma.
0: Trauma is where I really first began doing research. Uh, I founded the Veteran Stress Project to get this to veterans. I twice testified before house committees on PTSD veterans and trauma I written two books on on trauma and um I only later kind of began to think more about ecstatic states initially I was I was focused on just healing the trauma of these people who were suffering so terribly and so um again trauma has its own profile PTSD also is one of those conditions that gets worse over time. Mm-hmm. According to the World Health Organization, if you have depression, your episode will last about, on average, eight months, unless you get medication, which case could last forever. But, you know, depre- untreated, untreated uh, medication, depression, lasts about eight, eight months. PTSD often gets worse and worse and worse over time. In fact, one study of 5,300 first responders to 9-11 found that half of the cases of PTSD— were delayed-onset PTSD. Mm -hmm. These people looked fine after six months or a year. They didn't look so good two or three years down the line. I had one uh, wonderful man called Harrison Jack who helped us get EFT into the VA. And um, he, after Vietnam, he he, he served as a a Marine pilot there. He didn't believe in PTSD, thought it was a character weakness, said, I'm fine. And then... um, in the mid-1990s, 30 years after Vietnam, he woke up one one night in the middle of the night and he was strangling his wife in his sleep. He then admitted he had a problem. <laughs> Went into the VA hospital, got therapy, learned heart math, learned tapping. And um, so that's because you're using neuroplasticity to signal those trauma pathways over and over and over again, so they get bigger and bigger and better at singling and so now, whereas before you may have had um, a certain profile of brain function after traumatization, you develop a different profile of brain brain function you 're probably going to have a lot less gamma you'll have you may have more delta or potential delta yeah. you 'll probably have less theta and less alpha as well, and a lot of high beta, so all of that signaling again is changing the structure of your brain and the function of your brain over time. So that's why people tend to get worse and worse and worse unless they get an effective treatment like EMDR, EFT, yoga, any, any one of those therapies. Okay,
2: You've, though, really made a practice of figuring out, okay, what is the best I can get from each of these practices and how do I cram it into the smallest amount of time? And that's basically what Bliss Brain is about. Uh, your new book. But you talk about something called eco-meditation and EFT, which we've interviewed about this this tapping thing and how it's in a study with someone named Judith Pennington uh, out of Pennsylvania, um, how you were able to create these states that were uh, ridiculous, like, like a, a very short period of time. I'm just looking through the notes I have on the study. Combining those two methods produce statistical gains in what they call the EO awakened mind. Eyes
0: open.
2: Yeah. So, and eyes open, awakened mind. That's one of the things that people fast in caves for decades, working to achieve. So, how long
0: does it take to do eco meditation plus EFT? <laughs> I teach at Esselin Institute, and I've been teaching EFT there for years. And so, I proposed to them that I teach eco meditation there. And I said, we can bring people into these elevated states in, you know, 90 seconds on the third day, four minutes the first day. I got a very irritated rejection email back from them saying, Dr. Church, we have been, Esalen has been teaching all various forms of meditation for 40 years, and uh, we know that people cannot attain these states that quickly or easily, so they rejected mine. That, that can't be, therefore it isn't. Ah, classical science. Well, eventually they relented, and let me teach eco-meditation there, do, do, do a retreat there. And uh, the, the results were wonderful. People's levels of happiness went up, their immunoglobulins went up substantially, their cortisol levels dropped. I also did a week there of uh, people doing a combination of EFT and eco-meditation, and the results of that study were absolutely mind blowing. Their levels of their baseline cortisol, and you have to measure cortisol at the same time of day because it fluctuates during the day. So we had to measure them basically at 10 a.m. the first morning, 10 a.m. the second last morning. So we measured uh, all of these these physical markers of of health and their baseline levels of cortisol in just a week went down 37 percent with a high degree of statistical significance. When the bad stuff goes down, when when your stress hormones go down, it it liberates all kinds of precursors for good stuff. Their immunoglobulins rose by 113 percent in the course of that week. Their happiness went up by 31 percent, their pain went down by 41 percent, their anxiety and depression went down dramatically. Their resting heart rate dropped substantially. Their heart rate variability improved in just one week of these practices. So Dave, that's why I'm so excited about this. And I, I love your books because I, I read your books, I comb through your books, I make lists of the, the things I'll, I'll do, and, and I might change my supplements. I might change an exercise routine I, 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 I use. I'll, I'll use these external, exogenous behavioral interventions because they're useful. We need to get them right. But what we can do by changing our minds and our heart-centeredness? Are we in our hearts or in our heads when we relate to other people, when we live our lives? Um, Are we approaching our business meetings up here in our heads or down here in our hearts? You know, um, our spiritual practices, are we able to move into those elevated states and build that brain tissue? I've been so intrigued by people coming up to me now at my retreats and at my workshops and saying, I'm feeling a pressure in my head when i meditate now and i i I, what is what does this mean and invariably they point to either the mid prefrontal cortex or the temporal parietal junction in their brains. And, and I think what's happening is they're, they're stimulating neural growth in those, those areas, and they're feeling it. They're literally feeling their, their brains as they change. So I'm just wildly excited that science is now giving us the ability to study these ancient practices where we don't have to go to a monastery and spend 40,000 hours to get there. Uh, in this brain, I also look at some pretty obscure research, and it is looking—it's <laughs> it's MRI studies— comparing people who've done 40,000 lifetime hours, which is a crazy amount of meditation, with a mere 20,000 lifetime hours. And the answer is, there is no end point to brain change. The answer is, even after 20,000 hours, the difference between the 20,000 hours and the 40,000 hour people was substantial. In fact, the amygdala in the 40,000 hour people began to atrophy. This is your brain's alarm center. This is, this is the fire alarm of your brain, It screams to you to go into fight or flight. It literally was withering away through disuse. I mean, you want a brain like that where the happiness centers, the emotional regulation centers are big and bulky and effective, and the stress centers are just withering through, through, through lack of, of use. Now, if you have to get away from danger, if someone swerves in front of you in traffic, your fight-or-flight system is perfectly capable still of snapping on and taking care of you. But you don't live your life that way. Most people I, I test, their levels of cortisol are far too high. They, they're, they're living like they're, 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 the amount of beta they have is like they're in the jungle, you know. That is not what you want. You want a happy brain. You want a loving brain, a compassionate brain. You want to wake up in the morning so inspired, so full of of just wisdom and connection with what I call non-local mind in my books. That you're ready to just to just to just to have that pour through you into inspiration and joy to 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 affect everyone in your world. So that's the kind of brain, the kind of life you want. And and the thing about science is it's showing us how we can we can literally catalyze that. Without needing to be that monk doing the 40,000 hours, we can learn these techniques, practice them, and then become that, have the brain we we want in just a, a few hours of practice. Can you walk me
2: and through association,
0: everyone listening through the four
2: minute version of that right now? Sure,
0: absolutely. Love to. All right, let's do it. So if you're driving, pull over. Yeah, if definitely. you're operating a forklift truck or a crane, <laughs> <laughs> put it on pause. Or performing <laughs> surgery, yeah, anything performing like that. Surgery, yeah. <laughs> put it on pause and do this later. And again, all of these instructions are free on, online and we'll show you, Dave will give you links as to how to get those later on. Uh, but first of all, begin by... Stimulating one set of acupressure points by simply tapping with your fingertips on the area on the area of your other hand right below where your little finger is joined to your palm. So tap there on the side of your hand with your fingertips of the other hand. Like where you do a karate chop. Yeah, the karate chop point. And just, just imagine all the all of the tension and stress leaving your body. You're tapping about one time a second. About one time a second. Just visualizing all the stress flowing out of your body. And imagine your breath flowing in and out through your heart. So imagine breathing in through your heart. Breathing out through your heart. And then tap right below the pupil of your eye on your skull with two fingers. Again, feeling all the tension leaving your body. Breathing in through your heart, out through your heart. And tap under your nose. Tap onto your lower lip. and Then relax your hands, and if you haven't closed your eyes already, close them now. Breathing in through your heart. Breathing out through your heart. And relax your tongue on the floor of your mouth. and picture a big empty space between your eyes. Tongue relaxed on the floor of your mouth, breathing through your heart. And now slow your breathing down to six seconds per in-breath, and six seconds per out-breath, big empty space between your eyes, tongue relaxed on the floor of your mouth, breathing through your heart. Six seconds in, six seconds out. Feeling the energy of love and compassion in your heart. And then send a beam of that love and compassion to a person or place that makes you feel absolutely wonderful. Enfold that person or place in that beam of love and compassion flowing from your heart's center. Tongue relaxed on the floor of your mouth. Big empty space between your eyes. Six second in-breaths through your heart. Six second out-breaths through your heart. Visualizing that beam of love, compassion, flowing from your heart to that person or place that makes you feel wonderful. And now expand that beam of love and compassion. to touch every single atom in the universe. Imagine your heart beam touching and loving every single atom in the entire universe. Breathing in through your heart, six seconds. Breathing out through your heart, six seconds. Tongue relaxed on the floor of your mouth. Big empty space between your eyes. your heart beam filling every single atom in the universe with compassion now tighten your heart beam again to focus only on that one person that makes you feel wonderful and fold them with your compassion. And then gently detach that beam of energy and bring it all the way back into your own heart. Feeling your energy completely inside your own body. And then send energy to a part of your body that needs help. It could be a part of your body that's in pain. It could be a part of your body that is sick. It could be a part of your body that is weak or you don't like. And fold that part of your body in your own compassion. Tongue relaxed on the floor of your mouth. Big empty space between your eyes. Breathing in and out through your heart. And with the next three breaths, prepare to return your attention Back to your environment, back to the area around you, and on the third breath, open your eyes, look around, and notice the largest round object in your environment. Notice the smallest pink object in your environment. Notice how good your body feels and what time of day it is. And just give thanks to being a body and to be here. So Dave, that was a total of 10 minutes. That felt like more than four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I cheated. <laughs> well that that I was, took you in, I took you out. That
2: was pretty deep. And I'm I'm hoping that if you actually participated in that, uh hopefully not while well driving, as we warned you not to. Um that definitely takes you takes you to really deep meditative places and this is powerful stuff and no technology other than uh the ability to listen to it uh, required. And you can learn to do that without uh without any voice guidance whatsoever. So these are tools that are there but there really isn't a manual that tells you how to do this that you're born with so we have to figure it out as scientists and researchers and meditators and um, that's why i think uh, bliss brain is a is a worthy book that's why i'm writing the foreword for it so i'm i'm pretty excited for when this is available on the shelf because i think access to this for everyone where if you're going to do 10 minutes in the morning maybe this is a 10 minutes worth doing but maybe for someone else, pranayama or their alternate breathing through their nostrils is really the thing. But if you don't try them, you're not going to know. And if, if meditation is uh, like a vitamin for your mind, it's a nutrient thing. You pay attention to what you put in your coffee <laughs> for breakfast. You might want to pay attention to what you put in your mind uh, before or after that. And it's uh, it's an important part of, of being a high-performance human being. So thanks for sharing this with our guests. Uh, this episode is with uh, Dawson Church. His new book is Bliss Brain. His last book he talked about on the show is Mind to Matter, and he's uh, one of the leaders in the movement around EFT and tapping, and just a guy who's, who's spent decades researching these things, as you can tell from this interview. Dalton, thank you.
0: Dave, I'm so grateful to be here, and so grateful for your work and the passion you bring in sharing all of these wonderful biohacking tips with people, and also your love and your oh, your you. care that you you show other people. and um the the humor and the wisdom you bring to it so uh, i i love the information i love the energy behind it i'm so grateful that you're sharing this with your your community thank you uh, you're
2: welcome dawson and uh, I intentionally did not wear my hugh hefner pajamas today <laughs>
0: next time <laughs> <laughs>
2: if you like today's episode uh, you could actually play it again try it tomorrow morning take that last 10 minutes of the show and use that as your meditation and see what happens. Or go to Dawson's webpage, dawsonchurch.com, I'm guessing.
0: The best one, will for eco meditation is just mindmatter.com. Mind, mind matter. to matter. Oh. Okay. Go to
2: mindtomatter.com, get the meditation, give it a shot. And if you like it, do the simplest gratitude thing you can possibly do, which is go to Amazon and go to the book, Mind to Matter, and leave it a review. And while you're at it, leave a review for one of my books or for the podcast itself. Uh, bottom line there is by letting people like Dawson know um, that you've used their work that it was valuable and letting other people know it's valuable. It's one of the easiest things you could do to help other people. And we all know, at least if you listen to more than two episodes, that gratitude is one of the cheapest drugs you can use to be a better person and perform better. So what the heck? There you go. Free gratitude. And it's like tipping your Uber driver, but it's what you do for authors. So, on that note, have a wonderful day, hopefully, upgraded as a result of that extra 10 minutes of meditation, and I'll see you on the next episode.
1: A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.